You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking with Lara Meiklem, who is joining us via Zoom from London, England. This is the farthest we've Zoomed with anyone. It is. Right? For our podcast. Yeah. We're so excited to talk with Lara about mudlarking. And before we jump into that, though, I just want to check in with you, Crystal, and find out how was your week? What's going on with Extreme History? Well, it was a great week. We, this week, actually had a new board member join the Extreme History Project Uh, Board of Directors, and her name is Marsha Small. And Marsha has been a supporter of Extreme History for many, many years. And we've been wanting to get her on the Board of Directors for many, many years, and I finally talked her into it. That's fantastic. (laughs) So I know she's has a degree in Native American studies, and she's taught courses over at MSU. And some of her research has become very timely, hasn't it? Mm, It sure has. So she does uh, her research is in residential school, residential boarding school cemeteries. And so she does uh, ground penetrating radar in these cemeteries to uncover the location of bodies that are unmarked in residential school boarding boarding school cemeteries. And so um, with in the news in this past week, we've seen yeah. um, seen a, an, a discovery of 215 children buried in a Canadian residential school. So and this is her, getting a lot of attention. Yeah. I mean, Justin Trudeau, everybody saying, you know, really how sad and what a kind of horrible chapter this is reopening, but mm-hmm. such an important opportunity to mm-hmm. acknowledge what's happened. Exactly, exactly. And so Marcia Small's research is, and, and her dedication to this that she's had for many, many years is really come to, coming to the forefront. So we'll have her on the podcast soon, and, and she can talk about this herself. But, and yeah. the ground-penetrating radar is such an important way to be able to pretty accurately document um, at least how many individuals are there and, mm-hmm. and really sort of pretty accurate locations without disturbing the remains themselves. Right. Yeah. So Marsh has done that technology. And then Mm -hmm. you all did that together in the Nevada City Cemetery next to Virginia City. Right, right. So we, of course, pull in on any projects that we have where we're doing um, ground penetrating radar in cemeteries here in Montana. And so we were able to do that. And she helped with that at um, the Nevada City Cemetery, which was wonderful, where we discovered a lot of unmarked graves. So... Well, Marsha's yeah. a powerhouse, and she, she brings sure a, a yeah. very powerful indigenous feminist perspective, and right. she'll be so great having her on the board. It will. It'll yeah. be wonderful. I feel like she's sort of been an honorary I know, board she member has. anyway, <laughs> so that's wonderful. Yeah, so what about you, Nancy? Yeah, so in the last week and a half or so, um, we both got invited to a meeting that, mm. that you couldn't end up showing up mm-hmm. at, so I went for the both of us, yeah. and you were there in spirit, but it was um, about a, a really interesting collaboration centered around the site of Camp Caroline, which you and I knew nothing about, but it Mm. is a historic site that happened to be an African-American community that lived just outside of Butte, uh, where the Homestake Pass goes over the Continental Divide. On Forest Service land there and adjoining private land, there was an African-American community. They were were miners, as, as well as other folks. They branched out, but then they also eventually had a boarding house and some other things there. But there was an um, African-American Methodist uh, church uh, at one end of Butte, and so there was quite a thriving community that we really don't know a whole lot about. Mm. And living I think, outside of Butte, interesting. Yeah. Right. Because there was I, a huge African-American community living in Butte. In Butte, too. and yeah. they had to create their own um, transportation system in mm. and out, and the, and the reasons they 
chose to be where they are. We we have some historical documents, but um, Amy uh, Schwartz, who just recently got hired um, at the Butte office for the Forest Service, has a background in sort of African diaspora um, research, doing historical archaeology, looking at African-American communities in the West. She was a student of Kelly Dixon, mm-hmm. who we had on the podcast. And so there's this interest and push by the forest to to do a survey and assess what's there um, and perhaps do some test excavations. So they're looking at creating a co- collaboration with the University of Montana, Montana State University, and the forest and creating a fieldwork opportunity mm-hmm. for history graduate students, anthropology graduate and undergraduate students in 2022. So there'll be more on that to come. And mm-hmm. I'm very excited for us to find ways to collaborate, be a part of that, and, and hopefully then cover some of that exciting research. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So that's been exciting and, um, and more on that as we have it. Yeah. Yeah. So now we'll turn back to our guest. Laura, thank you for being so patient. We're so, so glad to have you with us today. And what I'd like to do is start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. So Lara Michaelum is an author. Um, I am giving you the title of an avocational archaeologist. And most importantly for our discussion today, she is a, a mudlarker. I don't know how if that's a, a word. Okay, a mudlarker. <laughs> she does mudlarking. So she searches for lost and forgotten objects on the foreshore of the River Thames, the tidal river that flows from the hamlet of Kemble in the east, westward through Oxford, Westminster, and central London, creating an estuary toward its eastern end before mingling with the North Sea. Among the thousands of things she has rescued from the muddy foreshore are Tudor shoes, medieval pins, Roman pots, Georgian wig curlers, that's amazing, and modern wedding rings. Much more uh, in addition to that, too, many more treasures. Laura grew up in the countryside and moved to London in the early 1990s and now lives a 10-minute walk from the beach on the East Kent coast. She's been mudlarking for almost 20 years and has spent a lifetime searching for lost objects and researching their histories. Laura has appeared on numerous radio and television programs and has written about mudlarking for The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Financial Times, The Spectator, and BBC Radio. Her first book, originally published in hardback in 2019, is Mudlark in Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. In it is the story of the river told through the objects she has found and is a tale of obsession, of tide watching, of mud walking, and endless hours of searching in all types of weather. Mudlark was a Sunday Times bestseller, an Observer Book of the Year, a Radio 4 Book of the Week, and winner of the 2020 Indie Book Award for Nonfiction. Wow. Wow. Very impressive. Mudlark has just been released in paperback, and we highly recommend it for all our listeners interested in history and archaeology. So welcome, Laura. Thank you very much. That was very very well done. Very concise. Thanks. Okay, we get a couple stars to start off the podcast. I like that. (laughs) That's great. Yay. (laughs) So Laura, can you you just start off by giving us a good definition of mudlarking and kind of explain to us um, what what is that and how do you do that? Well, uh, mudlarking on the Thames anyway is... uh, basically going down onto the riverbed, the Thames foreshore, when the tide is low, because the River Thames, not a lot of people don't realise this, but the Thames is tidal. So twice a day, it goes up and down. And when it's down, you can really go quite a long way into onto the riverbanks. Um, and when you're down there, mudlarks look for anything that's been lost or forgotten or stolen or, or just dropped. And of course, there's, in central London anyway, there's 2,000 years of history there. So you never know what you're going to find. Every tide reveals something new, leaves something new behind. And it really is just like a, a great big history lucky dip. Um, and it's obsessional because, you know, like, like I say, you just don't know what you're going to find next. Yeah. Fantastic. And I, I think I've heard the word before, but never had um, a chance to really delve into it. I love the word. The word itself is kind of beautiful, but it does sound super mucky and like you need the right equipment and you need to not be afraid of um, 
goopy substances to be able to <laughs> get in there. Um, a little bit different from the kind of archaeology that Crystal and I have done here in Montana. Yeah. When it gets really wet and soggy, we usually call it a day and we wait until. <laughs> so it's a different kind. Um, and you're not oh, actually... Yeah. He- you're not you actually excavating them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. No, no, but you you talk a lot about having, you know, the gloves and the and the wellies and and everything to protect you. But you're also not out there with a lot of heavy equipment to remove sediments. You're not actually digging down so much. No, I mean my approach to it is a, a very non-evasive um, approach. The river does all the work for me. And and in a way it's quite a sort of holistic approach because I like to see what the river's chosen to leave behind mm, you know mm-hmm. it, it's not the same if you're using I don't use a metal detector I don't dig I don't scrape um I I just pick up what's been left um which means that I'm not damaging the foreshore because the top few inches is where mm. all the creatures live you know the important yeah. it's the important ecology so if you're scraping that away you're, you're you're destroying that if you dig down into the foreshore because it's all made of compacted mud and rubbish this is why we find so much as soon as you dig into it the river starts to erode, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starts to eat into the softer mud. And you can just see where it's all started to collapse, where people have dug into it. Um, because it's the foreshore in the Thames is an artificial environment. It's been created um, as a flat platform for barges to sit on in the mm-hmm. sort of 18th, 19th centuries. And they used anything they could get their hands on, building rubble, um, domestic waste, mm-hmm. uh, industrial waste, kiln waste. And they just poured it all in behind these big wooden revetments, packed it all down hard, topped it off with um, a chalk cap because that's nice and soft for the barges to sit on. And um, and then when the tide went down, the barges could just sit quite happily at the river wall, nice and flat, and they could unload and load things on. So what's happened is since the 1960s, um, uh, the the barges and the cargo ships have stopped coming up that far up the river into the city and it's been forgotten about and nobody's been repairing these revetments and filling in the holes like they used to because it was a working environment and the river's turning the river back into the its its natural v-shape so mm. it's just starting to erode it back into its normal shape um and uh, like i say as soon as you start fiddling with that and disturbing that then you're sort of then you're then 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 you're you're creating problems and and you can see that all the way along the river where people have started to dig and things like that. So I choose a very non-evasive approach, um, and uh, you know I tend to search in a, quite a lot of areas where you're not actually allowed to dig. So um, it's right. a protected area in the way. Okay, we want to get into some of the issues of. Um what's permitted and and allowed and and legal issues and ethical issues but but for the moment i just want to go to a phrase that you mentioned in your book that the kind of mudlarking you do i loved you just you divided some people into sort of hunters and gatherers and that you're really more mm-hmm. a gatherer you're a forager out there looking for what as you said the river leaves for you what that you can just gather up whereas um, a lot of those who use metal detectors, and let me just tell you, I've watched the show Detectorists, and it's uh, we, we love it. It's hilarious, but you know, <laughs> it's a very different. I've never used one, but it does very much more fear like you're hunting for specific things, and then when you get a reading, you're stopping and you're you're then um, excavating down to see what gave you um, that noise. So, so it seems that that's a very different um, approach to, to what you're doing. But Crystal and I. Um, ourselves both have backgrounds in archaeology, and we have um, both experienced that incredible thrill of when an an object is unearthed, um, of holding something that hasn't been held by someone else for hundreds or maybe thousands of years. And, And that has always been an amazing thrill to me. It's always then interesting to see these things under glass in a museum and think, well, I dug that up out of the ground and I held it and I spit on it and we cleaned it and we measured it, you know, and then to see them being non-touched. And you understand that some things need to be preserved in a certain way. But to me, there's also a little bit of absurdity in some of that. (laughs) Um, But you mentioned that you started uh, collecting as a young girl. Collecting was just something you did. And you had in your garage... um, some sort of repository that had several drawers in it, and you used three different drawers to kind of divide up what type of items you collected. And your collecting became more elaborate and sort of an essential part of who you are, it seems, as you tell the story in your book and how you engage with the world. So personally, I've interviewed a lot of collectors, a lot of avocational archaeologists, people in the U.S., and I've kind of come to believe that some people 
are born collectors. It just seems to be something that makes them tick and drives them. And when I ask them why they do what they do, why they spend so much of their free time out walking fields that have been plowed after a rain? Why do they go to certain landscapes over and over that um, unearth new things for them every time they go? They they struggle a bit often to explain this passion and, and where it came from and, and what what makes it such an essential part of who they are. So I'd love to ask you about what you think drew you to this practice of mudlarking and if you've ever considered becoming a professional historian or historical archaeologist along the way? Why has it remained something you do not as your profession? Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I, I've always been a searcher. I've always had an eagle eye, I suppose, um, and, an, and a fascination with history. You know, I, I grew up in a Tudor farmhouse. That's, that was just home, you know, surrounded by history. And it's that it's that history that's not in the history books that right. I love. It's that right. sense of the past. The fact you can put your hands on a 600-year-old wall that you're sleeping next to and feel the past, feel the people who've been there before you. And, um, you know, history at school was boring. It was so boring. It was all dates. It was battles and kings and queens. And I really wasn't that interested in that. I wanted to know how people lived, you know, how they lived in the past, how my ancestors, how I got here, you know, what's, what's in me that got me here um and, and the things they touched and made and used um so I've always had that obsession and um the farm where I grew up on there was a plague village at the top of the farm so uh during the, the black death a lot of villages were abandoned just because there weren't enough people to live in them anymore and every time the plough went through that it would bring up you know pottery and things like that so we'd be looking in there searching for fossils and all of those things you know and I suppose, you know, I, I grew up in the countryside. I, I spent a lot of time alone when I was a, a child. My brothers were a lot older than me. and We were in the middle of nowhere. And, um, but I always wanted to move to London. You know, London's always, I love London. Um, but when I got to London, I was looking for peace. I was looking for quiet and solitude, as well as, the, you know, the good times in London. Um, I searched and searched. I went to the parks. You know, we've got some fantastic parks in London, um, some great places to go. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, I found my way down to the river. And it really is a f- almost a forgotten space. It's this, it defines London. When you look at London from the air, what you see is the river. Um, but a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's just something you pass over to get from the north side to the east side. You know, it's not something that I'd ever considered really going to. And um, it really is the streak of nature. It's the streak of wilderness that's been traveling through London for, for forever. You know, it'll be there long after we've gone. So it's got this sort of patience and this lovely sort of ambience to it. And um, I started walking along it. There's some great paths, the Thames paths. And then one day I found myself at the top of this uh, set of old wooden stairs and the tide was out. And um, it, I, I don't know why. And a lot of people say this in London, you know, they sort of for some reason you think I'm not allowed down there. Mm-hmm. Or it's too dangerous to go down there. And I thought, well, there's nothing stopping me. I'll go down and have a look. And I found a piece of clay pipe stem. Mm. And I found those in the garden at home, you know, in the old midden outside the farmhouse. And I knew exactly what it was. And I reasoned that if there was a, well, quite a lot of them, if there were those there, there was going to be more. So I went back again. And every time I went back, I seemed to find something new. Um, and I also found peace and solitude. It was an escape from the city. You know, it became my escape from everyday you know, crap, basically, you know, bad relationships, jobs I hated. Uh, then we had kids. It was an escape from screaming babies. Um, you <laughs> I could very much go- relate to that. Yes, yeah. I know. As, as, as I, I know. I thought you were very brave to admit it, but I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I love my children, but yeah. A few hours down there, and, I, you know, I wasn't a sort of a, a, an overtired parent anymore. I had my life back. Mm. I could dream and, and I could, you know, lose myself again. So it's really just a place that I go to dream and, and the place I go to get away from everything and think. Um, and it probably knows more of my secrets than anybody else. So, um, you know, it's just it's just a magical place to go. And the fact that it has this sort of this this trove of history in it um, is just an added benefit, really. Do you think yeah. if you pursued it as a profession, it might have lost some of that? I don't know. It feels like it's a therapy. It's a tonic. It's a complete pleasure for you. And it's a personal pleasure would would that have changed do you think if you pursued it as a as an academic or professional pursuit I think so I mean I mean between you and me I did archaeology in my first year at university and failed it um miserably 
Um, we won't so tell anyone. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Um, no, it would turn it into something else, wouldn't it? Completely mm. different. That's, mm-hmm. you know, it, at the moment, it can be whatever I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I it, it's so to de- daydream, not to not to analyze and pick apart. So um, I'm quite happy with it the way it is. You know, just to be honest, just writing a book about it has kind of turned it into into um, a, a, a lot more of something I sort of, you know, uh, less of a, a choice of, you know, that, 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 you know, sort of now I talk to people a lot about it, whereas before I really sort of kept it to myself. So, um, uh, so no, I'm very happy with it the way it is. I wouldn't want to change it in any way. Hmm. Right, right. And, and it's kind of become your profession in a way because you, yes, are, yes. you are working in this now. You know, you are um, spending your time um, outside the river, uh, away from the river, talking about what you do at the river. So I think that's really fascinating as well. But I want to come come back and talk a little bit about uh, some of those rules and regulations around doing mudlarking on the Thames. And I just have, you know, lots of questions about it. And you talked a little bit about this in your book as well. But do you need a, like, a permit or a license um, to do mudlarking? Or can just anyone go down and, and mudlark? And, you know, I think there is some regulation around what you can keep and what you can't. So I would just love for you to talk more about that and and explain that whole situation. We have we have pretty serious yeah. laws here, but pertaining only to public land. On private land, the only thing you're restricted from doing, uh, you know, is, is dealing with human remains that you would come across. And this is such an interesting case because it's land that shows up and then disappears again under the water. Yeah. And we have some f- interesting issues around who can access fishing and things about that, where, where the high water mark is. But anything that's public land is um, protected and in a way that it technically becomes the property of the federal government, but then everything else is unprotected. And we have a lot of people who complain about this in both ways. More should be protected or why is everything just for the scientists? Why can't I pick up things on public lands? Um, so yeah, so we're so interested in, in what this, how this plays out in England, especially along the river. Yeah, I mean, along the river, it's private property. Um, it belongs, most of it uh, belongs to or is administered by the Port of London Authority. Okay. Um, so when you go down onto the land, so you, you need their permission. Um, you need a permit. Uh, so you can get their permits very easily online from their website, Port of London Authority. Um, but you do need a permit and they are checking them. Um, when you're down there, they're look at the maps that are also on the on the website that tell you what you can do in various places because it varies there are parts of the foreshore where you can't mudlark at all it's completely protected they're what's called uh, scheduled monuments so if you think um stonehenge is a scheduled monument you're not allowed to do anything there you know let's even walk on it we've got several of those on the foreshore they're so important you're not allowed to go near them okay um there are places where you can mudlark eyes only so doing what i do you just pick things up and i'm allowed to disturb so much as a stone and there are other parts of the foreshore where, with a standard permit, you can scrape a, about, about that far down and you can use a metal detector if you want to. Okay. Um, so, yes, it is It is very important to follow the rules because it is our national history. You know, it's it's not a place to go to fill up your eBay account or, or what have you. Um, it should be treated with respect and, and the rules need to be followed. Um, the Port of London Authority, they're very generous. They actually own everything you find. You're not allowed to sell it legally. They're very generous. They let you keep most of it. Um, but what they don't want to see is people selling it because it doesn't belong to you. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't realize that. That's fascinating. Yeah. So the line um, is drawn on on selling it, not on possessing it. Yeah. Did they get to say what happens to it then later on? Say, if you were to, can you throw it back in the Thames? Can you give it to people? Can you do other things with it other than sell it? Or are you restricted? I mean, it depends. It depends what it is. If it is um, over three hundred years old and of archaeological significance, then you have to report it to what's called the Portable Antiquities Scheme, okay. and they upload it onto a database. I think they've got nearly two million objects now that have been found in fields and beaches and rivers all over the country in England and Wales, and it's an amazing project. Um, it's run. It's part of the British Museum, and so we're recording all these. Uh, objects that are found out of out of context, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to record these things. It really is because we need a you know a record of what's there. But because so much is found, they, the museums don't want really much of it unless it's really really important. Yeah. Um, 
And if it is treasure, if it qualifies as treasure, that means it's over 300 years old. It's more than 10% precious metal. It's not a single coin um, or it's a coin hoard. Then it legally has to be reported as treasure uh, to the coroner, to the local coroner. Then it's offered to various museums if they want to buy it. Um, they don't call it buying it. You're uh, compensated. compensated. So you get, yes. as, as the finder, you get 50% of value and the landowner gets 50%. Um, so that's basically the simple way, the rules. So there are rules. If you're coming from another country uh, and you want to take things home, you should have an export license. Mm. Um, and you get those from the, oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, but you, you need an export license um, technically for anything over 60 years old, actually. Um, and, and to stop, you know, sort of hauling our, 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 our history away in, in sort of bags. Um, and when you're down there, just I would just say, just don't take too much. You know, think about how much you need. How much do you need? Do you need a whole bag of pipe stems? Or do you just need one or two mm-hmm. to take home? Do you need, you know, a whole handful of medieval pottery? Or do you just want one or two bits to take back? Just be, be sensible. Act responsibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely met collectors who are on different ends of that spectrum. Some will pick up absolutely everything that they see. Um, and, and then they're left with some of the consequences of that, which we'll discuss later. But um, we also, I also see people who are much more selective and careful and then want to do something useful and, and share what they have found. So they want good examples of things. They want to create a database that's accessible and, and things like that, those especially who are doing it ethically. So, Laura, we're just going to take a quick station break, and then we'll continue asking you some questions. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Lara Michelin about her hobby of mudlarking on the Thames River. So, Lara, reading your book, um, I was not only fascinated by the the personal narrative style you chose. I, I love that it's kind of part memoir about your encounters with nature, with objects of the past but also what you were able to uncover about each of the artifacts that you choose to keep. So Crystal and I are always harping on context. And mm-hmm. when you find objects out of context, um, one of the ways you can give them context is is going and doing that research of uh, looking into the literature of folks who have found them in context, understand their use in the past, have documented those. And then you can attach to it um, not only what is known in terms of the time period, the material, the, where it might have originated and came from, how it was used, but then you can attach that story of sort of who was using this, how did it get lost, and and so I love that because you do a lot of that in, in your book. Um, so you mentioned having your own precise way of how you catalog your objects, um, codes regarding where and when you found the object, etc., and you also discuss all the specific ways of cleaning and conserving and storing your finds. So a lot of the same research that museum conservatives do, you've done. But you acknowledge that your method of coding is known only to you and that if you were hit by a bus, this might be an issue that somebody else might not be able to decipher your information. So I wanted to dig into that a bit um, and say it sounds like you have this very interesting an organized, perhaps even scientific way of categorizing the objects that you've chosen to keep. Um, there's an essential aspect of their history and, and archaeology then attached to them, but it's a very personal system you've created for yourself, not for an institution, not for the public. So in the U.S. anyway, professionals are often often prone to separate sort of ethical collectors from unethical collectors based on a couple things. One is, do they have a means of record keeping? And the other is, do they share their information about their fines? And you have mentioned that you, since 2012, have been putting so much of your fines on social media, which I think is, a, a, I mean, what a great new tool, mm-hmm. in a way, for yeah. archaeologists and collectors to share that information. Um, but I'd love to hear your musings on this. And, and um 
a little bit more about how you devised your own system. I don't want you to decode it or feel that pressure to give us the secret <laughs> to unlock it. But um, but sort of how, how you envision that may go down the line. I also, I was fascinated by your description of those printer cases because my husband's an artist and he has a lot of those that he stars artwork in. So I was imagining exactly laying the felt of different colors and having dividers and which one showed up artifacts. But, and it just it was so fun hearing your process, not only of the mudlarking itself, but then bringing back these objects, carefully cleaning, knowing the right way to use WD-40, you know, for example, to preserve something, and then how you like to store these things and code them so that you don't lose any of that information that you gleaned from them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I don't take much home, really, with me. Um, you know, I've been doing it so long now, I'm, I'm sort of past the sort of picking up every clay pipe I see stage um, so I pick things up that I haven't already got, um, or is a better example of one that I have got. Or if I collect something, like I collect old sort of like 16th century book furniture, I really like that, so I, I, I always bring that back. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that I bring home tend to be really small. Um, I don't have lots of big things, because people say, oh, your house must be stuffed. And it really it really isn't, because most of what I've got fits in my printer's chest. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all quite small things that, you know, the bigger things, I've got some... Um, 18th century wine bottles and some rum pots and things like that, and they on the shelves behind me. Um, so, so yeah. So, and, and really, my my conservation techniques would probably make most conservationists toes curl um, <laughs> simply because I have no choice. Because it's you know it's either a case of I leave it there on the foreshore and it gets smashed up and or washed away. Mm-hmm. I bring it home and I I try and conserve it, or I leave it and it you know it, sometimes it disintegrates depending what it's made of. So I have developed some, 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 some techniques that I find work and techniques that other people have told me work. Mm-hmm. Um, the main problem is leather, obviously. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, I find lots of those, those um, 16th century uh, knit combs, that, you know, like the ones they found on Mary Rose. And, and I found that if you put them in the freezer for quite a long time, it, it helps them dry out when you dry them out slowly afterwards. Um, bone dries out really easily it's, it's leather's the problem because it just shrinks and it curls mm. uh, shoe soles you just weight them flat and that's fine uh, but actual shoes are really difficult so um so yeah so it's um i have i have um tried out some weird techniques and some of them have worked and some of them some of them haven't but you know if i hadn't done it then then you know so yeah so uh, and as far as keeping a record to be honest you know, I, and I, I have a book that, that tells me it's really just a mind jogger that reminds me the date, um, where I found it, uh, you know, the location and the, the particular sort of spot. But when you report your objects on, on the um, Portable Antiquities Scheme, they use GPS to, to pinpoint where you find, found it. So everything I've reported on, on, on Portable Antiquities has got its, its exact grid mm-hmm. of where it was found. Um so yeah, so 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 really, it is. I really am a bit naughty. I really should um, decode everything and write it down properly so that you know, if anything happens, to me. God knows what's going to happen to my. I need to work out what's going to happen to my. my uh, right, the right. Stuff I've got is just rubbish. You know, to be honest, it, it's it's not stuff you're ever going to see in a museum. It's just rubbish. It's just mm. the stuff people want mostly um, that ended up going down the drain or, or being thrown into the river with everything else. Um, but it is fascinating because it is just that ordinary stuff that you don't see in, in museums. And then occasionally I'll find something really quite amazing that should be in a museum. But the London, you know, the Museum of London's got so much stuff, they haven't really got room for it. So, um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as archaeologists, we work in rubbish. We That's work all in we garbage. do is we yeah. dig trash. Yeah. So we get it. But each one of those yeah. items is, yeah. is like a small entry point into a much more interesting story. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, what? one thing that you do so well in the book, Mudlark, is you tell those stories and you've done the research to better understand the artifacts that you have and the objects that you have. So, I'd love for you to tell us one of your stories about an object that you found and the research you've done around it to better understand it oh my goodness right okay um well yes i mean i mean yeah i mean i i reckon that if i find out if i can find out what exactly something is then i'm allowed some flights of fancy you know uh and i can just go off and just imagine how this this object ended up there and i suppose one of my one of my favorite ones is the um Gosh, which is my favorite? <laughs> That's probably a hard decision. Yeah. Oh no, I really like this one. It's um, it's a piece of uh, gold. It's it's a really beautiful gold lace end, a gold lace shape. It's it's Tudor, 
Um, and it's just exquisite. And I found it in the spot. And I, and I can't tell anyone where it is because it's part of a mini hoard of, of Tudor gold that's oh. coming up. Every single piece is squashed or broken. Um, and it's been coming out of this particular area for several years. And the Museum of London's collecting it. And they, they told me they'd like to put it on display. And so they've got this. I've given them this shape. So it's part of their collection now. And um, it's squashed. And um, I reckon, you know, everyone's like, where's it coming from? Where's it, you know, how did it get there? And I've just got this this vision of, you know, maybe it was, um, there was, I, I like to imagine there was a servant and their job, because at the time there were sumptuary laws. So only people of, of a very high standing were allowed to wear gold. So this this object would have fallen off somebody of really quite high status off their clothes. And so would all the other bits. So I like to imagine that there was a servant. It was their job to, to shovel up all the reeds and all the rubbish um, in one of the Tudor, Riverside Tudor palaces. And uh, every time they did it, they found a little bit of gold that had fallen off somebody's um, clothing. And they collected up quite a bag of it. Mm. And it was all squashed and flattened from being walked on and, and then falling off people's clothes. And, and, um, and they had this nice little bag. And I reckon his wife probably found it hidden in their, in their um, hovel and uh, decided that it really wasn't worth being caught with and went down to the river and chucked it into the river in this little bag. And this, this bag is the, the leather's basically gone and it's being spread out gradually. So I reckon that's where it came from. But we're never going to know. It was either that or it's a bag of scrap gold and some goldsmith went off to pick it up and slipped on the on the, um, on the the dock and, and dropped it into the river. And you can just imagine him madly sticking his hand in the water and groping around the mud for it and never found it. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that, that's one of that's one of my favourites, um, and also a bobkin. I've got a 17th century bobkin with the initials SE um, oh. scratched into it, and it's got a little ear scoop on the end because they used to use the, the wax from their ears to pull Ew. together the threads. Oh, um, lovely! Yeah, so bobkins yeah. very often had a little ear scoop on the end, and this one's really bent, but it comes from around the time of the um, the Great Fire of London. Wow. So I can imagine, you know, somebody fleeing the Great Fire and dropping her best bobkin and a horse maybe stepping on it and then it gets shoveled up with all the uh, sort of charred remains of the city and thrown into the river and that's how it ended up there. You know, we'll never know with any of these things, but, you know, the stories are, are never ending. Well, I love the, your story of the thimbles that you're collecting and, and how all the different indentations have to do with the different needles that they would have been used with. But then the one you found that has a, a, a small heart scratched in the bottom and the idea that these were sometimes tokens that people gave each other i mean i just yeah, i had tokens. no idea yeah yeah i mean we find a lot of love tokens in the river uh and they oh. date back you know to medieval times uh, the, the the little symbol is one of them but we also find um, bent sixpences and most of them date from sort of late 17th century early 18th century when it was the fashion to bend a, a very worn silver sixpence into an s shape oh. and it, it said that sailors were very keen on on doing that when they came back to port and gave them to their loved ones. And it's it said that if, um, it, you know, if the girl liked him, she'd keep it. If they fell out or she decided she didn't like him anymore, she'd throw it away. And that's why, you know, we find broken hearts in London around that time. Wow. wow. That's amazing. I love that. I Those love are, that. Yeah. You know, and it's just that idea of putting the context back, like like Nancy was saying, putting that context back around these objects and telling their stories. And because they are all out of context, but they still have stories attached to them, you know, in some form or fashion. And of course, sometimes we have to imagine those stories and you do a beautiful job of that. Oh, I think it's wonderful. Um, so objects and until much more recently, you know, when we think historical, one of the reasons I got into archaeology is I love that these things were often handmade and made of natural materials, especially the farther you go back. So wood, stone, fiber, all these wonderful things. Um, but a lot of them, we're lucky that they're preserved. Some break down and eventually um, decompose. But this is not the case, obviously, with plastic. So we've seen that won't break down and go away. I'm, I'm amazed when you were describing the things you were finding along, you know, laptops and coal computers and things like that. But um, I was wondering about how much plastic you find in how that has affected your experience of mudlarking. And um, do you do you pick it up? Do you throw it away? Do you leave it for future mudlarkers? What's the what? How does that affect? Um, well, I mean, going back quickly to preservation, the beauty of the Thames is its anaerobic mud. So you can pull out a shoe that's 
600 years old and it's as perfectly preserved as the mm. day it went in mm. um so we do find all this Amazing. Sort of m- incredible organic material you know even cloth people have found um so it you know it is beautifully preserved obviously as soon as it's out of the mud it starts to decay very right. quickly yeah. um plastic yes the, the thames is one of the cleanest urban rivers in the world um it really is but there's a lot of plastic in it you don't see it in central london if you visit the thames in central london it'll look incredibly clean and they do a good job trying to keep it clean they have these these rubbish catchers but the, the rubbish is floating a few inches below the surface that's why you don't see it ah, okay. it tends to wash up on the outside of bends okay um so uh out of the estuary because of course the, the tidal thames goes from teddington right out to the north sea as you said right. uh, that's where it gathers and then there's banks of plastic uh, as high as me out there um and it's it's disgusting and it really makes you realize that you know our, our ancestors were leaving they were they were a messy lot you know they just chucked their rubbish wherever but their rubbish was organic you know it it, it, it it's going back to where it came from. It will eventually, you know, mm. break down, rock down, whatever, and go back to where it came from. Our, our rubbish is disgusting. And, you know, it's going to just break down into smaller and smaller pieces. And it's never, ever going away. Uh, what I'm noticing at the moment is a lot of PPE in the river. Mm. Um, and oh, the gosh, problem yeah. with, um, in the Thames is wet wipes. Because uh, raw yeah. soup still goes into the river. At the moment, they're building a big, um, massive uh, super sewer that runs underneath the river. It's as... It's as wide as some double-decker buses. Wow. Because we've still got the old Victorian sewage systems and it just can't cope with the amount of people that live in London. So whenever it rains, instead of letting all the sewage bubble up onto the streets and people's houses, they have to let it go into the river. And you really know when there's been a sewage spill. That's why I wear gloves, you know, and that's that's why you have to be careful down there. Um, But what people do is they flush wet wipes. And even if they say that they're flushable, they're not. And they wash up in these great big mats in certain parts of the river. And this is new, and this is absolutely disgusting. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's shameful. I'm, I'm ashamed of what we're leaving behind. Um, you know, all the mobile phones and laptops I find, they've got um, heavy metals in them. They've got all sorts of things that are leaching into the river. It's not none, but it's good. Um, so, yeah, I am ashamed, really, of what we're leaving behind. So you have to encounter that along with all the other much more lovely things you encounter, you know, some of the wild places and the and the objects that are coming out and it just yeah I would just find there's definitely got to be a tension that you experience there yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean there's part of the part of the foreshore where it, it, it is an old dump it's been used as a dump since the 1880s through to about the 1970s and it's um because of rising river um that water levels it's starting to the river's starting to eat into that so it's spreading mm-hmm. out and they did test the mud there in it they, they found um arsenic cadmium um, asbestos I mean you name it it's there so you know I, I would caution anyone going mudlarking to, to wear latex gloves take take the rubbish away if they can take if they find plastic and they can they've got space yeah take it away um, but you know some places I go I just couldn't carry it all you know obviously mm. it's just too mm-hmm. much there's just yeah. so much of it oh, oh that's boy. awful Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Well, thanks for commenting on that and talking about that. That's important. And we, you know, a lot of times we don't ever see that. Like you were saying, you know, you you wouldn't see that unless you go straight down there and, and go to where you go. And then you see it just sickens you because there's so much of it. You it's know? out of sight it's, of a lot of right. people who view the Thames from London. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have another question about something that is a little jarring <laughs> in your mudlarking. And, um, and that is, you know, you've taught, you talk in your book a little bit about the, uh, human remains that you've come across at doing this work. And you've seen bodies on the, on the foreshore when you've been doing this. But recently you found a human skull. So can you talk a little bit about this, Laura? There are, there is a lot of human remains in, in, the river if you go down onto the foreshore you'll see lots and lots of bones um most of them are animal bones so mm-hmm. you don't need to worry about remains and you do sometimes find you know the, the base of the skull or something like that um further out towards the estuary we um about 200 300 years ago there were prison hulks out there mm. um and also isolation ships uh so that the prisons were so overflowing they created these dreadful floating prisons they'd use an old warship they'd hulk it um fit it with bars and uh, they put put the people who were being transported in there so the people going to australia right or oh, even wow. the caribbean yeah. all sorts of places they exported people 
um, transported people. And um, if you managed to survive those dreadful places, uh, then you had to survive the, um, the the journey over to wherever you were going, and then you served your, your prison service, and most of them never came home. Um, the isolation ships were the ships that were coming into the port of London, and if they had any sort of disease on board, they'd have to moor up, and they'd have to wait wait out the disease. Now, on on all of these ships, when people died... They didn't take much care with the people who died. They'd row them to the nearest bit of swamps of marshland, quickly bury them in a, in a shallow grave, and um, and then just leave them there. Nobody wanted to hang around. Um, there's uh, there's one particular island called Dead Man's Island uh, that is is full of people from the. Um, they're mainly from the isolation ships, and because again of rising uh, sea levels, uh, the river's starting to erode. And you can see all the all the bones falling out onto the foreshore there. Um, you're not allowed to go there. It's completely off limits and they're just leaving it. It's a mass grave. Um, but because there were these prison hulks sort of positioned all, all down the river and all out on the estuary, you do sometimes come across um, uh, bones. And a couple of years ago, I was out with a friend and we came across a skull. And then we started finding more and more bones that we were collecting up. And eventually we had a, a, you know, a few arm bones and leg bones and, and this really rather beautiful skull. Um, mm-hmm. When you find human remains, on the force, you ha- have to obviously report it to the police. So we reported it to the police. Actually, what we did was we weren't quite sure what to do with it. So we buried it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took a GPS reading and uh, we gave the GPS reading to the police who went out and dug it up and took it back to their um, HQ and uh, they did um, they did uh, some tests on it, and they worked out that it, I think it's about 250 years old. So that does put it in the sort of realms of the of the prison ships. Wow. Um, they, they had Napoleonic prisoners of war on there as well. Um, so it's either somebody who was destined for Tasmania mm. or Australia, or somebody who was had been captured during Napoleonic prison, you know, Napoleonic wars. Um, so I asked the police if I could. Oh, no, I put it on online and I was contacted by Murdoch University in Australia. And they said because of this connection with possible transportation, they were really interested in, in um, looking at it further. And it was from the Department of, uh, God, Aquatic Forensics. So um, okay. a very, very clever woman. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what she does. And she can work out, you know, sort of how long it's been in the water, what they might have done, you know, all of those things. And wow. so this all happened just, just before COVID. So... Um, I asked the police. They said yes. I got permission from the coroner to bring him back, get him off to um, to Australia, had him all wrapped up, ready to go on DHL. He went off, and then he came back again because of COVID. So he oh. spent a few months in my garage, scaring the children. And in that time, um, Tori King, who genetically identified uh, Richard III um, from his remains in the car park in Leicester, got in touch with me and said, "You know, can I can I work on it as well?" So she's. Uh, he's now at Leicester University. She's doing some some tests, clever tests out there. So she's going to find out as much as she can about him genetically. Fantastic. So, you know, hopefully we'll find out where he came from and all the rest of it. And uh-huh. then if we can get him out to Australia, they want to do a facial reconstruction and everything else on it. So it's it's all a little bit up in the air at the moment. Um, it all got suspended. But, you know, I'm really hoping Fred at the moment is in Leicester. <laughs> by, the, by the great Terry King. That's, That's so great. exciting. I was yeah. I was wondering when you mentioned this this Dead Man's Island, if if any archaeologists or forensic anthropologists have have done any research out there, or have there been any plans to if all this stuff is eroding out and they know. I just didn't know if it had become a research site at all. You said it was protected. Yeah. No, I think they're just leaving it alone. Okay. Um, they're all. They're, it's all from the sort of 18th century, and yeah. uh, I think they're just being left to. Yeah. I don't think there's anything they can do about it, and you know, it's not that. I think. I think sort of. I don't think anybody's got the resources. Mm. Really. And is it all unmarked? It's just people in shallow graves and to, um, yeah. Analyze that. Maybe money's best spent elsewhere. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah into pine coffins and shallow graves. It's, it's very sad. But when I was writing the book, I discovered that I um, I actually had a, a remote ancestor, uh, Robert Maclum, who, who was um, a bit of a naughty boy and held on a prison hulk in Woolwich and ended up being transported off to Trans- Tasmania, where he carried on being a bit of a naughty boy. And um, and so, you know, that, that when I found this this skull, it really resonated with me. Yes. You know, this, this person could have been someone he knew. Who knows? Um, it could have been... You know, in worse circumstances, it could have been him. It could have been. Um, yeah. But the, you know, right. the marshes out in the estuary were just wow. dreadful places. No one wanted to be. You know, they have malaria out there. They, they, they moored them there because there was nowhere to run to. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Dickens. It's, you know, it's Magwitch. 
crawling right. through the marshes. It's that kind of that place, you know, it's where he came from. He came off one of the prison hulks. So, um, so such yeah, a strange part of the history. Yeah, just a, a strange part of the yeah. history to, to just yeah. think of exporting people, you know, yeah, and, and right, uh, right. yeah, oh, I know, it just brings you right to that in yeah. a very real way. For something like, you know, maybe they just stole a loaf of bread to feed their children, you know, they yeah, exactly. really were such minor crimes yeah. that mm-hmm. they, they, these people were being punished for. Did your did your relation go on to have a family in Tasmania, Australia? Even though he was being a naughty boy, do you have relatives there? <laughs> he did. He did. When he got he got transported for forgery, um, and uh, he left behind his wife and two children. Oh goodness! And then uh, and then he did get he did his served his, his sentence. He, he got remarried. He went bankrupt several times, owing lots of money. Had all his his um, his uh, possessions publicly auctioned several times, and the last I've I found of him, he was he went off to run um, a, a sort of general store in, near Victoria uh, for the gold rush, um, and I don't think they had children. Oh wow, hmm. interesting! That, that's a fascinating mm. story. Yeah. Okay. There's another book right yeah, there. Right, I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Lara, um, I wanted to just ask, we've talked a bit about your collection and you've, you've explained that, you know, what you have now is, you know, it's not this gigantic collection, but it's things that you've decided to keep and best examples of things and, and that sort. But, um, have you have you thought about? Do you have plans of of what will happen to this? When we interview collectors here and talk to them, we're always interested in their future plans, and it seems to be a question that you know some people answer. Well, my kids might want them, um, but I've seen situations in which that's not always the case. So I'm just interested to, in your thoughts about what what will happen to this amazing collection of material that's been you know meaningful and personal to you. Well, first of all, my wife's been told not to pack it all up and send it to the charity shop. Okay. Um, or put it in the bin. <laughs> That's good. Okay. So um, if, it, if it survives that, then um, I've got twins. They're nine at the moment. If one of them is, is interested in it, obviously, you know, it'll stay in the family. If not, I, I think I should really start thinking about where it's where certain pieces that people might want um, will go. Um, the important bits uh, um, and you know I do donate quite a bit as sort of, sort of the stuff I find quite a lot of um, so do you know what I don't know I haven't I haven't even written a will so you know I haven't thought about it that hard and I, I probably really should because it's 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 not good, is it? I don't know. <laughs> this, this is the answer we, we get we from everybody. And this yeah. is what we always worry about is like how many treasures are in people's attics or basements that they got, like it got passed down to them. And sometimes we get calls at the at the university and other places. What do I do with this stuff? And and a lot of times we're like, well, we first we want to see it and we want to see what in there is useful and valuable. Of course, it's more valuable if it has attached, you know, records to it of where they found it and, and when. And could it be a, useful as a comparative collection, a teaching collection? Um, so uh, some other time, we've got lots of ideas for you, Lara, if you want to do something <laughs> useful with it. But I think, you know, it, 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 is a, okay. it is important to think about because I think there's so many wonderful things that collectors do and find out. And then my main worry is what's going to happen to all this information you've amassed. And I, yeah. the fact that you've already done a book is, is a huge service to, to a lot <laughs> of it. But yeah. But, um, but yeah, well, good for you for keeping records, though, and, and making all this public. You've already gotten people contacting you who are interested in research, and I think ultimately that's that's a compliment to you and the work you're doing. It is. I mean, the way I see it, it's a shared history. Yes, you know, it's, yes. It's all of our history. It's important to share it, and I, that, that is – there are some adults that don't like sharing. They like to keep it to themselves. Yes, yep. Um, I've been criticized by certain um, – factions of the mudlarking community for sharing too much but i think that you know it is important it's important to share it the way i see it it's not mine i'm just the next custodian in a long line of people and it'll go on to someone else and i will work out who um (laughs) but you know i was lucky enough to 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 sort of be a part of its history it's you know it's an object in its own right um and you know like i say i started sharing online in 2012 i was the first mudlark to start doing that um, and since then, it's great. There, there are loads of mudlarks doing it now. And I think it's really good that they're sharing what they're finding. 
Um, people show me the things they're finding. They're like, I don't know what this is. And it's there's some incredible stuff people are finding. And I'm being I'm able to pass them on to the Portable Antiquities Scheme. And it's being recorded, you know, and people are aware of this stuff rather than it just going in a drawer and being right. forgotten about. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's very, very important. Uh, um, I'm doing a talk at my kids' school next week and taking some stuff there. You oh, know, fantastic. And, um, yeah. And so I do a lot of talks and I do a lot of things like that. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, if it can infuse a child, if showing someone, you know, letting them see this little tiny Tudor shoe I've got can infuse a 10 year old into uh, a life of archaeology or history, I mean, job done. Yeah, exactly. I, I know. And I honestly feel the way you do it, not the hunting for treasure part that we were we were talking about, maybe motivates some other folks. But I think you have to build in not only just curiosity, but deep empathy understanding people in a different time, place, different background, circumstances, as you're saying, just even imagining how these things ended up. And I think that in and of itself um, produces better humans, like having that exercise of having to get into that empathetic mind space um, is, a, is a wonderful thing to in, instill in others. And, and I think very much the kind of work and the way you present it really shares that perspective of it. So so it's been mm-hmm. a, such a wonderful way maybe for some people to to think about how they would encounter these objects. Yeah, and I love how yeah, you... I mean, Go ahead. I, I, I try not to use the word treasure because I think that implies mm-hmm. something, you know, and that encourages the wrong people. Right. Um, it's not treasure. You're never going to get rich from what right. you find on the fourth floor unless you're very, very lucky and nobody has yet. So, uh, you know... It's not treasure. It's 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 history, and it's a shared history. It's not your history. It's it's everyone's history. So you know that that's I think what's important. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Absolutely. and making it public and really getting those stories out and that information out. So I'm glad you've been sharing this so widely. And of course, that's how we heard about it is through yeah. your book. You know, you wrote this book. Um, and the title again of your book is "A Mudlark in Search of London's Past Along the River Thames," and you know I just kind of randomly came across this book at our local book sh- bookstore and you know it was just such a, a a wonderful read and so enjoyed kind of diving into it so i'm glad that um you agreed then to to do this podcast with us because it's been great but i highly re- recommend that book and that book has um just been published as a paperback here in the states um, so go out, find it wherever you can at your local bookshop, um, you know, wherever you can get it, get it, because it's just a great read. And uh, Laura, like you mentioned that you do a lot of social media. So you have a Facebook page called London Mudlark, Laura Macklem Mudlarking. And then your your Twitter handle is at London Mudlark. Also on face, Facebook is at London Mudlark. And then on Instagram is at London dot mudlark so you're kind of on all all of those social media platforms so people can find you wherever yes, they I am wherever they go and i love your i love your instagram and your twitter and your facebook because you do videos on there about your finds and what your research is and kind of what you discover and you know even um watching on your facebook page you you go out with the camera on and you you let us kind of go mud lurking with you which is great for for those of us who can't who don't have access to do that um right now anyway but I would love to come over and like tag along with you some days <laughs> I know I know my sister used to live along the Thames when she moved to London she's outside of London now but she loved being along there and the tide coming in and out and the um just the way she would see people go out onto you know the foreshore when um the tide would be out and that you would see people building sandcastles and doing all sorts of things um so I I only have a smidgen of experience with the Thames but now I'm like anxious to get back across the pond now that COVID's over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. so sort of over. Yeah. Sort of. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so I Laura, have to say, now you know what goes in the Thames. I don't know if we'll be building sandcastles. Right. 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 No <laughs> Not without gloves. No. No digging. No digging. <laughs> so Laura, you know, I've mentioned some of the ways that people can find you, but are there other ways as well? Or is there anything else, you know, you would like to mention? Um, no, not really. Just, um, you know, find me at, at London Mudlark on Twitter and, and Instagram and Facebook. Um, obviously, my book, my new uh, American lovely paperback with lots of um, color pictures in the middle is out now in all bookshops and online. And I'm going to be on the Smithsonian Channel on the 20th oh, of June. Oh. Smithsonian yes. Channel on the 20th of June. 
Wonderful. 20th of June, they're doing something called Secret Cities, and uh, I'm in the London one, doing a bit of a mudlarking. So if you want to see me actually in action, I'm I'm there. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Wonderful. Lovely. Wonderful. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Lara. We could talk to you all day, I'm sure, but we want to thank you and, and all our listeners out there for joining us today. Um, and if you like or love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up each week on your podcast app. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find us there and to like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes, but we also include links to specific articles and books and things that we discuss during the podcast. Thanks again, Laura, and thanks to all of you for listening, and we hope that you can join us again to find out more about the The dirt dirt on on the the past, past. or in this case, the mud. Yeah, thank you so much, Laura. It was so fun. You're welcome. Thank you. And a big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy, and original music by Lawson Alegria. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.